Alright, hello everybody, this is Manny Escamilla, the Full Metal Archivist, uh, coming out of the Iron Lion Studios. Um, so, yeah, today we're going to have uh, someone who's a mentor to me, Gerardo Moet, uh, was a uh, city manager for about four months uh, here at the city of Santa Ana, but had a much longer career stretching about 30 years uh, in a couple of the departments here, uh, HR, the city manager's office, and uh, most significantly uh, in the parks and rec department. So uh, someone that I ended up uh, working with a lot and I thought was a very uh, interesting figure within the city as far as his kind of breadth of experience and uh, his own kind of life story as to how he ended up in Santa Ana. So I'm hoping that uh, you enjoy this as much as I did. Uh, we ran a little bit long, so we might be splitting this up into two uh, episodes as to not overwhelm everybody. It's a you know two-hour podcast is different than a one-hour podcast, so uh, we're going to see maybe if we can find a natural break in there. Um, so you may or may not be listening to episode one of uh, Puro Policy Party with Gerardo Moet. Uh, Gerardo, uh, yeah, thanks for for joining us. Um, and this is going to be a very fun uh, little podcast with someone who I consider a uh, mentor. So, you know, thank you for uh, all your years of service in the city of Santa Ana and um, your, you know, I guess willingness to serve the residents and the mission rather than maybe the agency itself or the the, the bureaucracy itself uh, sometimes. So with that, uh, Gerardo, I was wondering if you could re uh, introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Gerardo Moet, and I am the retired head of Parks and Recreation Community Services Agency for the city of Santa Ana. Cool. And for people that don't know that, that's basically parks, uh, was at one time the libraries, uh, the zoo, and uh, everything really with uh, after-school recreational programming for the city? Correct. Senior centers as well. Ah, and senior centers. I, I, I feel bad that I always forget about the senior centers, but I know I'm going to need one when I'm much older. Yeah. Well, um, so you have an interesting background in the sense that um, where were you raised and born and like that um, bicultural experience that you had growing up? Because you know, th that, I think, is something that very, it's pretty fascinating about your particular background. So on my father's side, my father, who uh, brought to the family the last name Moet, um, there were a few descendants of some, we're mainly Mexicano, I'm a proud Mexicano, but um, there were some Moets. He was born in San Jose del Cabo, which is now a big resort, the tip of the peninsula of Baja, called Los Cabos along with Cabo San Lucas and San Jose del Cabo. San Jose del Cabo was the town, uh, and um, he lived um, with his five siblings, mom and dad, in, uh, in a mango grove type of country, lots of mangoes. And um, his father died tragically when he was five, and all sorts of different drama occurred in the family that I won't get into, but uh, it's interesting, but there's, we don't have time to get into. But um, my grandmother with six kids in tow um, left, uh, this is before the depression, right around the depression time uh, when it was starting and took a ship 
from La Paz to uh, Baja California to Ensenada. And in Ensenada, uh, she got on a bus and took the kids to Tijuana because she had two sisters there. So she joined the sisters. And my gr father grew up in Tijuana and my mom was born in Tijuana. And her great, her grandfather was postmaster uh, of, of, of Baja uh, at the time, of Northern Baja at the time. And so that's how her family came to that area. They're originally from uh, Guadalajara, but she was born in Tijuana. And um, so my mom and dad had three children. I was the youngest. My father became a U.S. citizen because he joined the U.S. Army for World War II um, in exchange of getting his papers, basically. And But he put at risk his life. He saw action under General George Patton's leadership. He was, uh, towards the tail end of the war, um, is when he did saw most of the action. And he... And that's why all of the kids, even though we were born, my two, my brother and my sister, we were born in San Diego. We grew up in Tijuana because my father decided to have a house and, and life in Tijuana. So he would cross the border, go to work on the American side. Uh, and I would cross the border when it was time to go to school. And so I used to cross that border every single school day from first to 10th grade. So I became very aware of the two government systems, the two cultural systems, the, the uh, lack of equity with regards to poverty, not only just within Mexico, because there's a lot of poor people in Tijuana and a lot of rich people in Tijuana, but I also saw the comparison to low-income pe low people in the United States and then from there i decided i went to college to uc san diego and the rest is history but that's why i was a, i'm a border guy yeah and and with that so you know in some ways um the city of santa Ana is one of the biggest border towns not on a border in, in many ways right like we have a lot of individuals yeah. here that do you have that experience? Is that initially what attracted you to the area, or at least some component of it? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even though I worked at UC Irvine with minority students, that was my primary task, and that was very rewarding. I really wanted to work with the people that had needs, and the population, the community in Santa Ana just reminded me of Tijuana the people there, which I always longed to or wished for them to improve the quality of their lives because they were so poor and so accepting of mm, just the bad state of, of reality, whether they were poor and they, you know, and I didn't think the government in Mexico was not only did not it did it not focus on what it needed to focus it it focused on the wrong things and it was very corrupt and to this day is a very corrupt system um and which is probably why i eventually majored in political science even though i was 
somewhat inclined and interested in the sciences, uh, I ended up after doing my um, exploration with philosophy, with history um, classes, uh, I ended up uh, in anthropology and stuff. I ended up focusing on political science, thinking that's I was going to work in government and. That's why there was no doubt in my mind that I would eventually leave UC Irvine, even though I enjoyed it, because I wanted to find a local government. And there's 34 cities in Orange County, as you know, and the most diverse one and the one that reminded me most of Tijuana was Santa Ana. So as soon as I came to Orange County and I discovered Santa Ana, I rented my little apartment which is was right next to Santa Ana High, which is where you, currently it doesn't exist because that's where Henninger uh, Elementary School is. But I used to have a little studio apartment by myself. So, so you, got, you, you got bought out by the city and uh, bulldozed then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I, I, and I, to this day, I do believe that Santa Ana is unique and has a lot to offer the world actually as an example of uh, eventually good policy and even uh, a sense of values that um, condemns corruption in Latin America because that's part of the problem that we currently have. I was just talking to a gentleman this morning who took his family for uh, to see the family in Guanajuato. I asked him how it was, and he says, oh, it's the same, you know, lots of violence. And it's really, really sad to see so many innocent people suffering. But, you know, suffering, I guess, the suffering was what motivated me the the suffering that i witnessed as a kid uh on a human level of seeing poor people because i <clears throat> when i was exploring science and medicine as a possible career option i volunteered to be a translator to doctors without borders and so i really got to know the poor in tijuana that had just you know, it's, you know, we complain, but man, there are reasons to complain, you know, the, the suffering of poverty and disease. There's nothing like being sick and you have no resources or no wherewithal where to go. Uh, so that just opened my eyes to the, the human need. Um, and I think that growing up in Tijuana just influenced my direction in life i needed to get an education but i kind of my core motivational motivation is still there and so and i think you mentioned it i'm not sure if you, you mentioned it this time but so you went to uc san diego uh, yeah and then um then your first job outside outside of that then was with uci or uh so my first job I went to UC San Diego. I was a little bit of an activist and at the I wasn't even I was sort of advocating let's like let's take over the system and change the system. 
kind of a thing. But I wrote my letters to the editor, etc. And so I once I graduated, I went to Los Angeles, and because I was familiar with the looking for jobs in the University of California system employment bulletin board. <laughs> I went to UCLA. And so I started, I lived in that area and I became a bilingual um, housing counselor. So I helped uh, tenants fight eviction. Uh, and because there were, you know, when when you're poor, when when the landlord knows you're poor, you don't have resources, and the landlord feels you don't even know your rights. If there's some landlords decide to, to, to exploit that. So I think probably what I'm recollecting, my famous, most well-known case that I handled was a settlement where I got 11 tenants who were very poor to get their um, to their to get their money due, which was um, the the moving expense and variety of different things back then, and I remember being uh, very proud of that moment where we and the, and then the tenants were so happy coming to our office to thank us because they were just going to be booted out and had no so I I did that for a while so housing was my thing from for a couple years before I went to UC Irvine where student diversity became my thing for six years including leadership programs for um, high school uh, diverse high school students in in uh, that they would spend residential experience at UC Irvine and uh, that I did in the summer leadership development program and then during the rest of the year I basically helped programs recruit minority students to UC Irvine cool. and that, that's sort of what uh, what brought me to Santa Ana and then told my boss Manuel Gomez retired vice chancellor well, I'm leaving and he was very upset because I used to work really really hard and come, came up with some creative solutions. But I said, so, well, it's not personal. It's just that I wanted to work with directly, as directly as I could with the community. And that's that's what I ended up doing. Uh, and yes, um, sometimes it, you slow down processes that you're in charge of because you don't believe in them. You don't tell your boss you don't believe in them. You just you you not there's lots of different opportunities sometimes to feel that things will change in the near future in this case a i had a particular city manager when i oversaw the library asked me to get rid of and close down and save a little bit of money the the new hope branch library and he was, he, uh, this is city manager Paul Walters. He had just finished um, uh, uh, achieving the closure of the city of Santa Ana Fire Department 
and doing a contract with the fire authority, which saved lots of lots of money, six to eleven million dollars. I don't believe it was worth it in the long run, in the long haul. But nonetheless, he did that. And you know, closing down New Hope Branch Library. If you, I'm a budget guy, so it was going to be insignificant the amount of savings to the general fund. While I saw the risk, he didn't see the risk that the community in that area was going to fight it, in my opinion. Um, a lot of the population that used to go to the tutoring center were Vietnamese people. And I think I just kind of knew that they would fight it and I knew that it would be a mistake. Plus another thing, that he didn't know that I knew, I just had this gut feeling that he wasn't going to last. He's going to, he was going to be fired and he was. And so why go fast, give him what he wants, even though it's ill-conceived. Wow. Um, knowing that if I, yes, sir, I'm doing the study, we're working on it. Meanwhile, Hopefully someone, it dawns on him that it's a, it's not worth the pain, mm -hmm. the little bit of money, but more importantly, he didn't have to do, dwell too much on that because he just got fired. So I didn't have to, that was the last time someone asked me to seriously think about closing down New Hope Branch Library. Yeah. And so that was, that's a short example of sometimes um, not only do you pick your battles, but you pick your opportunities. And when you pick battles, you assess on whether you're going to win or not, or how you're going to win. When you pick opportunities, you assess what the factors are, the timing, the, the will you have time? Does the environment that you're in however complex is going to change. So it's not an easy thing, but you can't do it by yourself. You need the community there, or at least a specter of the community there to help you. Like no one cared or believed me that the Vietnamese community in that area that got served by New Hope uh, was going to be a problem. They, if you asked them and they were in power, they would probably say, Ah, who cares? They won't do much, right? But the need is there. They may not do much now, but eventually it's not a popular thing to do. It's a, it's an unwise thing to do for the quality of life for them. I, just because they're not organized and fighting, so doesn't doesn't mean that you shouldn't do the right thing. And then. Uh, Lastly, the not only does it give you hope to continue going, in this case, slow <laughs> for New Hope, but it gives you it gives you hope on any of the projects that you want to do that sort of that you know that those with the real power are either against it or they're not sometimes not even against it. It's just not a priority. It's not like we're against it. It's just not a priority, so we don't want you to focus on that. We want you to focus on something else. And that something else is like, in my mind, pales in comparison to closing down a, the only branch library that was left over at the time. 
Right. Because my family had already been closed down. Right. So you always have to imagine that the community is there. And better yet, the community needs to be there. So it's hopeful, hopefully the insider doesn't have to hope that the community is there. But the community is there, right. you know. And I have a few examples of those where the community was there or the specter of they're going to be there if you don't do the right thing. Even though I have to tell you, people take minority votes, Latinos in particular, for granted. And, and uh, you know, don't worry. Don't worry. They're not going to organize. They're not going to do this. And so this last election, every once in a while, there's a few lessons learned about that silly attitude that people have. They get overly cocky. And I do think there were some losing candidates that were overly cocky locally this last November. Uh, you're retired already. You can, you can name names now, or are you still want to stay cool with everybody until... <laughs> Well, I mean, if the police union gave money, I know they they backed up um, Council Member Jose Solorio, right? I think. Yeah. And they 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 probably backed up Juan Villegas. No, no, they they were not with Juan. Uh, They spent money with um, his other um, guy. I want to say it was Vic um, Mendez. I want to say. All right. So, 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 but originally Juan Villegas, when he first got in on board, he was supported by the police union. He then gets all like, oh, it's me. Now I have popularity. I'm going to bank on my popularity to win this case, hence cockiness. So Solorio was the only candidate for running for mayor that got police backing, right? Yeah, that is correct. Okay, so Solorio says... You know, in this town, it's, let's say, maybe he doesn't say this, but a lot of people do believe this, that historically, a lot of the candidates that win are the ones that are supported by the police union. And it didn't happen in this time. Because probably, you would know better, Manny, but probably a good number of people that are not expected to necessarily vote, voted. Yeah, the the turnout rate was uh, near eighty percent, so it was anywhere between um, seventy eight to about eighty two percent in different uh, precincts in the city. So it was extremely high um, overall. And what was even more dramatic was um, like looking both at the primary uh, uh, share of the electorate and the general election, you had a massive wave of quote unquote youth voters. Uh, but really, these youth voters essentially kind of being now what are are me like right uh, middle aged uh, or nearing middle aged um, millennials. So that kind of wave, which is actually one of our biggest um, demographic cohorts in the city, if you go by like you know individual bars and quartiles to see where people fall into, um, they came out to vote. So that was a massive showing. And, um, you know, these are individuals that, uh, by and large, um, were not uh, backing uh, POA or developer-backed candidates, just on, on average. Uh, so the politics there was different. Um, and what we also saw was looking at the Democratic primary that uh, Bernie Sanders swept, like, the entire city except for, like, one district 
um, that I think went Warren uh, because one person voted for Warren and they were the only person in that particular uh, precinct. Um, so, you know, the kind of electorate that was coming out and was energized, at least on the Democratic side, um, by Donald Trump really came out against a lot of um, local establishment candidates, it seemed like, just on, on average. So, so um, people that hadn't shown up to vote in the past showed up to vote this time. And I think that's what you're seeing, that they tended to be more younger folks. And they got... Um, energizes your word by some of the politics nationwide you know you hate trump you're pro bernie and so forth so there is this kind of combination of progressiveness but at the same time discuss with who the president is right and so it just latinos the young latinos coalesce and showed up in great numbers and voted but here's the problem. It's not a pro it's not it's not long lasting if you just show up to vote. You show those that show up are the ones that end up having the power. You have to show up for policy issues that are on the agenda. You have to put in the time and the effort because you don't want this to be oh, you know, November 2020 was historic turnout and never again, you know, and never again. The never again is when policymakers, no matter how progressive or whether they're to the right or to the left, realize they read the same stats you do and says, you know what, that was a blip. And now I pretty much can do whatever I want. I figured out how to get elected in my ward and I can do whatever I want. And before you know it, the consciousness of what is the right policy is now done in a vacuum without voices, without people that you're supposed to serve. And that ends up becoming a problem. And so the insider that wants to reform the system wants to reform it in a way that's going to improve the community. The community needs to express its needs, needs to always show up, or else the inside reformer can't look for those opportunities. Also, there might be opportunities that that inside reformer is not aware of because doesn't know about some of the needs in certain segments of the town. So there needs to be this ongoing engagement type of a thing. And you're not going to get city employees to take initiative and coordinate. They're not community organizers. They're not going to be allowed to be community organizers. So they're not going to be allowed to organize the community to have the engagement in that. Oh, we know this is an important policy for the future. This is an important. There's not none of that. You'll get a city employee to join, like when they were doing the first early uh, building a community, uh, a healthy community, the California Foundation. So there was a bunch of city employees that went from PD. It was Captain Tony Harrelson, who already retired from from uh, your neck of the woods, 
uh, were planning and building in community development agency was Scott Kuttner. Um, I was in the city manager's office, so I always went and I listened to these things and it was beautiful. Now, being invited is something, but coordinating is a different thing. You get back and the boss says, what the hell are you doing? You know, <laughs> because these, because who's going to be potentially most irritated by the community organizing? The people who are already in policy, policy makers. Why is the city employee messing there in a community engagement meeting? And then the city manager says, stop it. Stop all of you. They don't want to, he doesn't even want to hear the reason. They just say a blanket statement. I don't want, I don't need that type of headache where someone gets irritated, an elected official, because you're going. And I, um, actually, I, I want to say I wasn't in the city manager's office. I was Parks and Recreation, and I kind of fought to be in that committee in the community because they didn't think, yeah, it was Jill Arthur at the time. I remember having a bit of a, debate on who should represent the city and it turned out that just you know tony harrelson scott cutter and myself or there could have been others but there were the ones that attended the more but they sort of wanted just one person and for some reason jill decided it should be scott because scott would report directly to the city manager and i was a director and i says well this sucks so I went in and I spoke to Dave Ream and he didn't take my side. <laughs> he didn't take my side. And, and I says, well, screw this. What are they going to be monitoring me? I'm just going to the meetings. <laughs> well, that, that, well, that'd be a little harder now because now your, your meetings would have to be um, uh, transparently put online. So they would just look at your Sunshine Ordinance meetings and know exactly where you are. <laughs> yeah. And, well, this was the, the building a healthy community meetings that were great meetings, very well facilitated. California Endowment would sometimes take us to LA. And uh, I remember having one at Villa, the gymnasium at Villa Park, Villa, no, Villa, Villa Intermediate, next over there by the administrative office. Mm -hmm. There's a junior high, Villa Intermediate. And, um, and I, and I loved all that kind of engagement, but it's a, it's, you can't expect an insider to be a community organizer. I sort of wanted to, but I, I couldn't. You don't really have much of a career if you do that. Right. Uh, yeah, because there are definitely different roles. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if this is maybe backtracking, but kind of in the same light, like, what was it like going and coming into the city of Santa Ana in the early 90s, so this is what you said, about 1990, uh, that you started working for, for Santa Ana yeah. in, the, in the HR yeah. department. Uh -huh. um, what was it like to be a transnational or you know, binational um, Tijuanero, essentially, at that point, right? And like San Diego uh, guy coming in and figuring out how this city was being run. You know, this very Latino city, but, you know, the 1990s, the, the demographics are all there. So we're, I think, we're already at 80 plus um, percent Latino, but the government and the kind of policymakers maybe not necessarily reflecting the city at that point. I, I don't really know kind of what those breakdowns were, but can, can you speak a little so, bit about that? 
So Dave Ream, uh, who just recently passed away, uh, was a city manager of 25 years, which is pretty unheard of. And so in order to be a city manager for so many years, you have to really know how not to alienate. You want to prevent alienating any policymaker. As a, as a rule, you want to keep them all happy. This is city manager survival. And... Um, as a rule, you want to be able to keep them happy because one that's not happy can easily start persuading others that you need to go. And so, so city the city manager Dave Ream before uh, I got there the history that I know of, a lot of the people that he reported to and previous to him, other city managers, they, it, it, was, it was a city that wasn't, all, it wasn't like other Orange County cities in my opinion. And you, I'm just guessing um, conservative to the core. It, it was, oh, open-minded because it did have diversity in his demographics but also i recall there was some diversity every once in a while in the elected body there was an african-american woman i remember on city council this is before alberta um and um and there was um previous latino elected officials probably before john acosta and so um, when Dave Ream became uh, the city manager, however, though, the point that I want to mention is that the city was managed as if it was still a small town of mainly white population where, where the recreational sport for youth was baseball and and it was just smaller population wise and then the city started changing demographics a little bit in the 60s but a lot in the 70s in particular the 80s if i recall and so there was a lot of white flight however though the system was always tolerable of of minorities at least to the eye and um, so then now I come on board as I'm a city employee and it's 1990 and uh, Miguel Polito, I think, um, do you remember what year he became mayor? I know he was council member before that. I, I want to say 92 or 94. Oh, oh did it? Oh, oh, one no, second. No, sorry. That, that was just my mic. Um, so oh. I, I want to say it was 92 or 94. I'm trying to remember exactly right now. Okay. Because I, when I started working for Santa Ana, the mayor was um, uh, Dan Young. And so Dan Young, I remember two young council people that work with Dan was Rob Richardson and Miguel Polito. And they um, 
John Acosta was in the council. Pat McGuigan was in the council. Rick Norton was in the council. But generally speaking, with the exception of John Acosta, who was not, who was very anti-immigrant, what I recall. John might still be alive. When I left Santa Ana, he was a, key, a very active member of Kiwanians. But I remember his mailers and the, his quotes in the paper that were just like, it was heartbreaking because he was he showed no no empathy towards the undocumented worker and he and that was part of his campaign material if you will but for whatever reason he did not like dave ream john acosta didn't but now back to dave ream dave ream was very astute and he realized so in um that his council was changing to become probably the majority Latino. Um, and um, because of this, he decided, even though I don't, I'm not saying that he was totally against, and it was a, a marriage of convenience, his decision to um diversify the workforce, but he decided to diversify the workforce. And it was astute because there was a lot of articles coming out where accidents were occurring or crime was occurring and neither the cops or the firefighters could speak to the victims or whatever in Spanish. And, and, um, and so, uh, I think it was 91, 91, where uh, I had just been plugging away and what am I gonna, how can I diversify the workforce? Because it's diversifying a workforce is leadership from the top. You got it, you got the leadership from the top has to say, it's important, I want everyone, next hiring is to focus on diversity. I mean, it's just key. You know, you, you don't diversify a workforce if you know that the top echelon doesn't care about a diverse workforce and not caring about a diverse workforce makes it okay to sometimes say racist jokes or sexist jokes and so forth. Because, you know, it's not important to the boss type of a thing. So, um but this time it became important to a boss. A boss, and I believe that we had a system, it was more of a norm in the city of Santa Ana government that probably ended around the 80s and still evolving now, you know, and I witnessed a lot of it, which was basically like, um, like the British managing a third world country when they were in power as a colonial power and that's how they managed uh you know there's a caste system and caste system is primarily north 17 a few everyone's in while wilshire square down south or whatever the case may be and as long as you don't mess with that don't mess with the little league um you you were fine but then the the prospects of of more latino policymakers bosses of city manager 
were coming made him act proactively and he said let's have an award-winning diversity program and suddenly i became much more influential and i did a program and i connected it to if you're if you want the attention of a of a of a director who um who may not be a hundred percent in support of diversifying a workforce just connected to their performance appraisal and to a performance bonus because money talks and that's what i ended up doing i was put on um the spotlight at emt uh, meeting with the city manager and directors what is it you need to be, do in order to make the program successful well if you connect progress on diversifying the workforce to each director including the police chief and the fire chief on every quarter and i'll do a stat report every quarter and connect their performance appraisal their bonus then you'll get results i just said it and he said let's do that <laughs> and immediately it's like ah, it's not that important to me i live i i live in 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 north Dustin. i live in costa the Costa de casa or whatever the case may be you know the directors it's like who cares you know i want my bonus and so so again another bureaucratic tool that can be used uh metrics yeah. tied up okay and 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 the, the head of personnel at the time the head of human resources was not that keen on diversity but suddenly everything changed because it's just one morning dave Ring says you know i have to start having a legacy here of diversity because I'm white, they're gonna see that I'm white and they're gonna see there's not enough progress or he hasn't done much on diversity. So he started being proactive, very strategic on his part. Whether he's sincere or not, it doesn't really matter. Who, who, who's to know, but, um, and then he got an article published in the PM Journal, which is the the International City Management Association, ICMA uh, magazine. Um, and uh, I was proud of basically that article is mine. I wrote it and, but it talked about the model of diversifying workforce. And I talk about connecting it to the performance appraisal. And I wanna say that was published either in 92 or 93, probably 93. Um, but the, I think this was, this, my words are, are, I think in response to, was there a historical trend? Was there, so, so there is this kind of colonial system that manages a city and still to this day. And I, I don't think, I believe that that in uh, around 2005 and 2006, and two th uh, Mike Garcia was elected either in 2004 or 2005, maybe even before 2004. He might have been elected in 2000 um, because I, th I think that's when Claudia and Lisa Biss came in. 
I think. Anyway, <clears throat> but I remember that Claudia, I mean, not Claudia. Yeah, I mean, Claudia and Lisa were anti-Miguel Polito for a while, and, and then they weren't. And Mike Garcia, notwithstanding that he was very close to Jose Solorio, sort of, he ran against the mayor, or he was planned to run against the mayor. He was a one-term council member. But, so th to, what does that say? That says that there was a challenge to the power structure, and the power structure was still colonial. And so these people that wanted in, it, were, it wasn't that they were thinking, we want to get rid of the colonial system, but they too were also, they just wanted to take Miguel's place, basically. And and then in 2006, the the um, Benavides, Dinajero, Michelle Martinez, and um, and I think they appointed Sarmiento, so he got an extra year, which is why uh, his term was always a little different. Um, They, I don't. I still don't necessarily see them as free of the ghost of of colonialism. These necessary these elected officials because they have to. They just took the place. It's my turn. Move over, Miguel. Move over, whatever. And and we're still. So you know the young people need to show up and stay, and make sure that it's their government. And it doesn't have to be young people, it could be older people as well, but they were the, the, the group that made the difference this time around. So with showing up, um, I don't know if you can talk about this at all, or at least what your experience was with maybe seeing the same people over and over again and you know how much maybe that either does or doesn't reflect the actual um, community at large. Like, was that something that would kind of come uh, come to mind when you would be getting input maybe from the same people, meeting after meeting, uh, but then... Community, not... community people? Yeah. Um, so there was a point where I thought of all the neighborhood associations as part of the colonial, colonial system. And the reason I thought that was that the leadership never changed in the in the neighborhood associations as far as i could tell it was the same people that sometimes would have the courage to go and speak at a council meeting and so i always felt that the city was too too accommodating in making sure that the dynamics of a neighborhood association were were status quo on like if it happened to be um, a president of a neighborhood association that alienated a lot of other people and so a lot very few attended the neighborhood meeting and this person continued to say I represent this community this neighborhood etc it the staff didn't care they just the the marching orders was don't cause me a problem to the upstairs 
don't cause me a problem with the neighborhood association. So I actually believe I, I did a little bit of research a while ago, and I don't know how accurate it was that the neighborhood associations structured neighborhood associations was a response to a citywide um, neighborhood movement that that's that took place before I got there in 1990. So somewhere in the 80s. I don't know what their agenda was. I want to say their acronym was Samson, but I'm not. I might be mistaken. Um, there was uh, a gentleman that was very, very active, white, who I ended up meeting later on, and then he passed away. I don't remember his name, but to me, the neighborhood association development leadership and all that was not organic. It was, you know. So I didn't feel all that comfortable. And I always wanted new blood to come into the neighborhood association. And it was, and staff didn't, was hands off. You don't, you don't, like, how do you get new blood? Hey, this is a young uh, Latina who, who grew up in this neighborhood. And how do you get her if you're an employee? to convince her to be part of a neighborhood association and like maybe take it over or become its a leader or something like that and bring in more people because you had neighborhood associations that were just taught all we want is can you get for parks and rec issues is could you get rid of the homeless and make sure that there's no soccer being played it's like you know just baseball or, or when baseball was dead in that area, can't you bring back baseball again? Like I can go into the 50s and bring back baseball again, you know? And it's very nostalgic in some of their motivations. So um, in answer to your question, I don't know what you meant about, are you, are you always dealing with the same usual suspects with regards to leadership? I don't know if that was one of the things. No, I, I think you you answered it, and um, I, I guess I, yeah, I wasn't trying to lead you, but I was like kind of reflecting upon my own experiences, where there seems to be a general disconnect between what the average resident wants, and then maybe individuals that become a little bit more involved, and it's like so it's trying to figure, it parse that out, like how. How much do you give credence to particular complaints? Like, um, to me, the classic example is um, Alebrijes, right? So, like, one of the most popular food trucks in all of Orange County, you know, dedicated clientele, much beloved um, by the city at large. Um, and in fact, has a tree that's been watered by that generator and kind of the, the water kind of coming out of the, the, um, the the truck that's you know a much larger tree than the tree just kind of right next to it just because it's you know that it's been such a consistent fixture um so by any metric a very successful well-loved highly touted um local business uh, but then if you go into the neighborhood association meetings everyone's like oh we need to get rid of that pink food truck um and so that's why like okay how much do we you know give credence to um you know people that claim to represent a community and you know but how much of that is also a a true representation at least some community interests so like i don't know if you had uh, your stories and how you balance that well you know the so someone that cares about that pink truck but doesn't live in that neighborhood association to make it even a little bit harder but lives in santa ana 
but but actually drives a mile to go and eat at the pink truck and they he he or she doesn't understand why the neighborhood wants to get rid of it. it's such an important place and it brings lots of notoriety and fame or whatever the case may be and um the so in a way forget the issue the pink truck in many ways it's some of the dynamics is not in my backyard so you're coming you're an outsider and you're coming to to try to defend this pink truck when the people that live around there says have the pink truck go and park by your neighborhood not we don't want it in our backyard kind of a thing it's too messy it attracts around people the wrong people etc cetera, etc cetera. so this person that's a mile away needs to understand that the dynamics of what would seem like a simple thing are actually complex and that if you were asked if you were to ask the children of these neighborhood leaders they would say leave the damn truck alone we love eating there or something you know so there's if there's two goals truly the by the way is the pink truck gun gone oh no it's it's not well as, as far as i know i haven't really been going outside <laughs> so okay. i believe it's still no, there no policy decision was made among the city council on no, I, I think it's a live and let live. The last time I think it came up for discussion, um, there there was talk about you know the the additional regulations on where they could be located. I don't oh. I don't think that location actually qualified, but no one's had any kind of enforcement action on it. And yeah. I think I, I, I this is one part where I think I saw Solorio eating at the truck when they were discussing the truck, and I was like, well, you're eating here, so <laughs> yeah. So let me see. Um, Another, it's, so when I worked on the Pacific Electric Park on McFadden and the bike trail, McFadden and Orange somewhere, I never really got any negative feedback from anybody other than someone that lived right next to, and he was quite vocal email wise and you name it in making in saying we don't need a park we don't need a park we don't need a park he was he lived right next to what ended up being the park um people from henninger neighborhood association from wilshire neighborhood association from madison neighborhood association from east side neighborhood they all agreed they needed a park but it was one person, if you were to analyze, well, he lives right next to the park. Okay. So it, you have to understand that the pink truck and the park are an example of not in my backyard. The 2525 North Main is an example not in my backyard. So how how do you camp how do you develop a sophisticated campaign to at a minimum 
change your attitude about the pink truck, change your attitude about the park. You know, if if they truly are at risk on killing the project, as they did in 2525, it's not probably a good example because that's not something that I would, that I was for, you know. Um, I, I wanted housing to be built. Exactly what, I don't know. I'm not an expert, but uh, I know we have a housing problem. And so I, I didn't see... I just saw people thinking it's bringing the wrong crowd and it's not going to improve my property value. And that's not in my backyard. So I saw this guy and lived next to the Pacific Electric. It's going to reduce my property value and it's going to bring in the wrong people, uh, druggies, homeless, whatever. And then the pink truck, maybe some people had the same thing. So, um, there could be one project where the opposition that don't want that project that you're in order to really save that project you're going to have to develop different strategies but if you're not probably live and let live is going to be at the end of the the day you want to reach some kind of a harmony some better understanding and they show up and stay that's pe people that are not arrogant, that are humble, that love the pink truck, but know how to be ambassadors to the pink truck. You know, how do you save something? People, it's like, I love this truck and this is why. And look, we had, um, I couldn't afford a quinceanera, so I bought all their food there and then we went to the backyard. Whatever the case may be, stories and all that kind of thing. And so, People realize that the campaigns are ongoing on what's important, which this is the point where I say to the young people in particular, there are a lot of things that I think can improve in the cultures anywhere in the world. And Sometimes we have prejudices as Latinos. I know that there's a lot of sexism. I know there's a lot of machismo. And I know that that attitude um, does not do a good service to Latina women. And so there needs to be an ongoing awareness and campaign by young people that believe that's a problem. And, you know, what's the system? The system is this cultural system. It's in their own culture. They need to work on that. You know, um, domestic violence and all that. All of that, I just don't believe. I believe that our, we need to get involved. We can't just, okay, well, when when finally... The girlfriend is beaten up so badly they go to the cops etc etc no shouldn't shouldn't rely on this system of of um if you're lucky maybe the safety net that wasn't even designed for you might help you you need to and there's there's also a lot of racism 
sometimes in our code. We just need to be honest. If you're going to show up to change things for the better for the community, you can't just cherry pick and say, well, this stuff around my backyard or, or you know, you, you have to be much more aware that a strong northeast side is a strong southwest side and how do you connect with these people or else you don't have a sense of community and culture is an important thing and if there's a bad thing in your culture um in particular to the young people they should discuss it because it's very hard to discuss with your elders <laughs> sexism machismo um racism um uh, sometimes I'm sure that there are young people pulling their hair because they had a conversation with some of the elders and they cannot make sense in their talk about their faith and their church, whatever church they belong, because they're so uh, committed to a long, either a longstanding tradition or a new tradition if you're not Catholic kind of a thing. And so it's it's difficult. You have to have those conversations uh, because, you know, culture sometimes influences how you, sh whether you show up and whether you vote. Right. You know? <laughs> you know? No, I, I absolutely agree. I believe um, voting is a learned behavior that needs to be exercised in order to be... Um, yeah, utilized consistently, but um, yeah, yeah. To, to the earlier point where it's not just enough to vote, but to, to be involved and to, to kind of you know show up, not just um, at the voting booth. And I think that um, you know one of the hopes with you know this podcast and then also some other efforts that I'm I'm working on is like to let people know about it. Um, just because, how do I say this? I sometimes I don't necessarily think that bureaucratically. Um, information is given out and meant to be boring it's just that you have to try to not offend people in, in a lot of ways it has to be a very kind of like common bland um way of approaching uh information and can be very dry um but that sometimes it kind of loses the essence of why people should care right so we talk heavily now for the last few years about the importance of the general plan and its land use changes and the zoning and everything but at the end of the day it's like this is what's going to be allowed to be built or not be built in the future for your city and that's why you should care um yeah no I, I agree and where do you find the opportunities to share and then how whether you call it fear of offending or not let, let's put that on a, a list of things that prevent you from communicating effectively with the audience on whatever it is so I again remember the point that it says you need to be invited if this amazing group of voters like no time before there's so many that voted the turn voter turnout if they were to organize in in a variety of different creative ways but say one way is Okay, we recognize that we know little about sometimes developers giving campaign money that sometimes people call dark money. 
and then we know but we need to learn more about developers and we need to know and let's do some case studies about that development project over there on the corner of this and that and to, we need to understand so you then who controls the meeting it's the community and then you're invited or a staff is invited or a professor's invited and sooner or later someone's going to start getting it. it you don't have to be concerned of offending some member who's speaking to them educating them is not going to be as concerned with offending they're just trying to realize this group really wants to learn and you i don't believe if that we can rely on a system where we hope that little um we plant little moles of 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 these saintly bureaucrats that want to be enlightened and teach the community that it, it isn't going to work there's too much need it needs to be in the hands of the community and then you invite the representatives and and you, and, and if you're not getting an honest answer you grill them you know and and but you you should always i always believe in diplomacy because you never want to burn your bridges because you want to invite the person back with more refined questions or something um but um so it's not a matter of as a presenter figuring out how to present more effectively that's always a good thing but it's a matter of the audience defining what kind of presenter they want and demand and ask questions and sell out the seats they show up and um when when that happened organically after we saved not permanently but temporarily a stay of execution on the 1.4 acres that ended up being pacific electric park the decision was for now we'll give four months so that the community can do some research on whether and convince us the policymakers whether it's going to be truly a park and so that that coalition of various neighborhoods um that i mentioned earlier uh, started having these sessions and inviting policymakers, but really their strategies was to show their enthusiasm, mm -hmm. put on food, and then they increased their attendance to show their enthusiasm. And the elected officials needed to see that and says, "Oh shit, this is not going to go away. This issue, and we can't. We're going to get a lot of pissed people that actually <laughs> are a good size number." And they're all like several neighborhoods together. No, and they went back and they told the city manager, no, that that needs to be a park. And the city manager told me, start thinking in how it's going to be a park. Mm -hmm. And it was all, it wasn't because I presented in a very honest way to the community. It was because the community had an opportunity and 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 they organized these social events these forums they were called forums and 
they wanted to know from policymakers, why do you think there shouldn't be a park? We think it should be a park. And then let's enjoy the food. Kind of. <laughs> now, and that did it. That did it, it for that particular project. Right. And what I, what I see going on there is definitely the, the involvement of community. Um, but I, I'm also kind of, maybe I'm reading between the lines here, but um, knowing how you operate or seeing you in action, one of the things I think you'd always stressed was um, not taking credit for things, though. Like, would would you yeah. say that you um, can see like see the value in stepping back and and um, minimizing your own role and really emphasizing the role that other that other folks yeah. play in this? Well, yes. Um, it was. It's with power when you have power. What is it that you get? You know, you get maybe the satisfaction that you're able to build some infrastructure or improve housing here or develop a new park and all. It's like that's apple pie, right? I mean, it may offend some person that lives right next to the future park or something like that, but that's not a bad thing. You're taking care um, but um, the the um, see, I think I I was heading somewhere and I think I lost it. But um, the so so uh, I don't know. It'll come back to me, but. Um, do we do we call where I was? What was the question? So um, one of the the things that I'd always kind of um, seen you do, um, and I think you vocalized this uh, during one of our other kind of uh, discussions, was the importance of not taking credit for things, but really kind oh, yeah. of empowering the residents. Credit. Yeah, the credit. The credit. Yes. I'm sorry. So back to analyzing power. So some people love power because their pictures in the paper more because they can talk to your family, to their family members and saying, look, I'm such and such. That's an important thing. Um, they become more in their minds famous. Does this, um, if, if you were to say you can get power, you can do all these good things, the park, the this, the that, improve policy, balance the budget, all these great things, but no one will know it was you. You're not gonna get your picture in the paper. You won't able to you won't be able to ham it up and say I did this and did that. But it's good. The the projects were good. Someone's gonna want to take credit for it. Uh, someone will always want to take credit for a good thing. And so you build on that. That's a good thing because you want, again, it's just a show. It's like because an individual person like Gerardo is not going to, even if there were a lot more Gerardos and there were a lot more Mannies, it's not, we're not going to, it's a very, it's a big city. We're not going to be able to do everything we want. You need, and then we're not always going to be here. And so you need to know, we need to have people that know 
how City Hall works within the context of who you're serving, in this case, culture and socioeconomic status and the different interest groups, the unions, the developers, the power of the neighborhood associations, psychology, some egomaniac policymakers, etc. But I always felt that to me, I, I was just motivated by the by the achievement and not by the credit. And um, and while okay, one can say, well, that's not very realistic when it comes to human nature. Human nature wants a person wants fame and wants popularity and all that. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but that's the that's the problem with politicians. Too many of the people go into it just because of that, you know, because of that. There's no other thought. <laughs> There's no other understanding, you know. Yeah. And it's like I, that's why I frequently dealt with a lot of policymakers, and I'm thinking, oh my god, this is a very ignorant person. They don't know anything. They don't know why they're here. They just are here and they love it, you know. And or sometimes they have very specific agenda. They just want it because of another thing. It's very complicated. And it's good for business. Another <laughs> another business, you know. Okay, well uh, and, yeah, for some of the, some of you might have gotten that that joke. Uh, go back to the election of 2018 uh, for that one. <laughs> Uh, oh, it wasn't a joke. There, there was a candidate that said, "Like it's it's good for business." Like literally at, at one of the campaign um, uh, debates. One of the oh the, really yeah. I, I wasn't aware. <laughs> I thought I'm sorry. I, I, thought, I thought you were making a joke. <laughs> no, but I mean I can believe it. So I mean I think that's where I mean I I think it's a famous um, desktop. Uh, phrase uh, you can do anything you want as long as you don't get the credit or claim the credit or something and I think Truman, President Truman was known to have said that and had it on his desk or something like that but the point is um, <clears throat> as, as as a very experienced uh, now deceased city manager once told me <laughs> Politics is show business for ugly people, and uh, oh man, I, I feel attacked. <laughs> yeah, I mean it doesn't happen. Yeah, there are exceptional elected officials, and um, there are. I mean, I, I know, I know them. I mean, it's but, but it's not a rule that they're the very exception, and so it's not a personal thing. But in 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 dealing with 10 out of 20 elected officials maybe one is different and unique and sincere while the rest of them is like you know they couldn't get into show business so they got into politics because <laughs> of the fame and, and the it's sad when you see someone who's re, who was a council person along uh, many years ago and now they're this or that or whatever, and they their claim to fame is all oh, back. Oh, I used to be a council member. 
And that's it. Like, that's the highlight of their life. Now, some people went on to become big influential developers. Dan Young did, moved out of town, eventually was the number two guy for the Irvine company. And, um, but, uh, you know, there was, there was even a, a staffer that I think, I think it was you, maybe someone else, maybe reminding me, he was a deputy city manager in the 80s. Didn't work for Reem. Maybe he worked for Reem at a certain time, but he left around when Reem became city manager. And I could, I, when I was last speaking to this person, couldn't remember the name, and I remembered the name. Now I can't remember the name. Yeah, I don't but think it was he, me. <laughs> huh? it, it wasn't me. I'm really bad with names, right? I'm like one of the worst people with names. That's why I have to write everything down. Yeah, no, so this... Um, it may come back to me, but this gentleman in the 80s figured out how to de help developers build apartment buildings. He worked for the, for the city manager's office, build fast-track apartment buildings in the 80s, which, of course, is a big population jump, and a lot of the poorly built buildings that we have, apartment buildings all over, they mushroom everywhere in the 80s. Santa Ana was not the only town that experienced this type of thing. I know Long Beach did, uh, but um, there was, he quit from being a uh, deputy city manager of development or something like that because he was making so much money. And he would still come to City Hall. Uh, I heard, you know, I think I met him once, but um, I guess what I'm saying is that power, the the show business adage of of politics and show business for ugly people. There's a certain level of politics in in being a city employee that also attracts that type, you know, that has that type of 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 uh, ego. And, you know, normally people think of past city managers when they ask that question, but they know how to bifurcate it. Like, don't step over the line and show your ego to the elected officials because they're your bosses. Well, of the city managers that I reported to, it's those that did cross over the line that got fired. Mm -hmm. You know, and... Dayreem didn't have an ego needed to go outside of that line and compete and compete ego-wise with elected officials. You can have that, you know, you can have that. And he was just good at making things work the way he thought things needed to work. Right. And you know, to that end, it seemed like I'm not sure if this was a marriage of convenience or really a, a true partnership between him and Miguel Polito. Like, right, that was like one of the most fundamental relationships to try to understand what happened to Santa Ana in the 90s and the 2000s is that relationship between those two two men. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. In, in a short way of saying it is that 
um, it, let's say hypothetically speaking, your city manager and your day dream, and you realize Miguel is good. He can go, and they were just a lot of talk. He can become a county supervisor. He can run this and that. I wonder if he's going to do that. But he stayed. As long as he's staying, then he's going to be my man because he's very capable. So see, it's a matter of who you see capacity-wise. Oh, you know, um, and you turn the other way with regards to um, questionable little mistakes on ethics or whatever the case may be, because is he going to be here next year, the mayor? Is he going to be here two years from now? Is he still influential among the majority of the elected officials? All of those things occur, um, go into your mind as a city manager. And and so you make a decision, you know, uh, you like the person or you don't like the person, call it a marriage of convenience, you kind of see the risks of a divorce. And so you keep the marriage going because there's not going to be and you know that you could easily be taken out if this person really didn't like you and wanted to coalesce. And so this suddenly, you being at the beck and call of this person, but it, but his philosophy, Dave, was really of everyone. But you know, some more than others, obviously, because some have higher needs than others. But then the problem with that is that jealousy occurs among elected officials. And then, like, why is this person getting information or more time and I'm not kind of a thing? And so it's never um, it's never that simple. But I do believe that Reem saw Miguel as someone that was going to be there for a while, which is why he decided to, you know, be with him. Hmm. No, and Miguel is definitely... Uh... Uh, once uh, in a ger- generation political talent, right? I, I think that no one ever argues that Miguel is not politically talented, and um, you know he was very, yeah. v- you know, very good at staying in power. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very curious uh, for for him. I don't know if I'm ever going to get the chance to interview him, um, but that would be fascinating. Um, so, what else changed then uh, during your time here? That was like the '90s, 2000s, and then the 2010s, almost uh, 30. Almost almost 30 years? Yeah. And then, um, and then another eight before I left Santa Ana. But yes, um, the, what was it like? Say your question again. Oh, no. Well, I, I guess um, it's really just, it's fairly broad because I think the uh, time wise, I think maybe we might have made it up to about the year 2000 and. Eight-ish, maybe, um, but even then, just kind of tangentially. Um, so, I, I guess what, I, what I'm asking is, you know, structurally and kind of big picture-wise, what were the major shifts that you saw, um, you know, going past your time in the, the early '90s um, and kind of coming into this modern era? Like, what changed in the city, either for good or ill? Um, you know, that people should be aware of, especially that aren't kind of navigating this. Um, policy and politics space okay. so um i i would say redevelopment redevelopment brought in lots of money 
to the city of Santa Ana. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't regulated the way it should have been regulated. And now I'm talking about lots of cities did this, the monies. And they're, what do they call it? Incremental tax taxes. Yeah, yeah tax increment, yeah. Tax in- increment. And so um, w- when that started becoming less and less something you can rely on, and then when it completely disappeared, which was uh, under Governor Jerry Brown. So I don't know, it could have been 2010, 2011. I'm not too sure. It could have been earlier. I don't remember when he got rid of, of redevelopment, but. Um, so it looks like that was uh, around 2012? Yeah, okay. it was around 2012. Yeah. So. Um, the The. Another way of seeing that the system was developed to facilitate redevelopment monies being used for projects. The city government system, every that was sort of a priority. And 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 then sometimes policy-wise, the use of city manager of of uh, community uh, monies that should have been available for a community development block grant it was used to finance the police building if i recall in other words they they created a they they did a loan and as collateral was a cdbg payments mm. you know to get the money and i believe a lot of the widening a lot of the purchase of the land around bristol was also done this way yeah it was uh, essentially slum clearance that's the probably the single biggest act of quote-unquote slum clearance in the city's um history um at least as part of one particular project the the civic center uh, expansion and subsequent um condo construction along south uh, what is it uh, around second third and uh flower the flower area like those large condos also probably qualify um, but Bristol itself, like, took out the most amount of, of properties, as far as I can tell, um, as far as one particular project in the city's history. Yeah, I believe it. Um, I fundamentally had a... No one ever asked me, and it was done even years before I became aware of that this is the way the finance occurred. So, to me... I, I don't know if there were any other option, but it seems to me that using CDBG resources for these two projects was a mistake. Um, because in my mind, you could have used it for so many truly community development projects um, that would benefit sooner than, sooner than later. And for the life of me, I did not how can you rationalize a police building in jail uh, with CDBG monies? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not an expert in CDBG, so maybe there is maybe there is a common practice of doing these things. It just seems, well, at a minimum, it seems that it was done not transparently. It was just done. Right. You know, and so that's not good. 
uh, even if it were transparent and people say there's nothing wrong, I mean, still, I still think it's a policy decision. Right, and then uh, for you know for transparency, because I think a lot of people that listen uh, don't aren't necessarily um, experts in uh, local government, but are kind of just more interested in Santa Ana as a whole. Um, so I want to make sure that we cover a few definitions at least on um, the tax increment financing. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know if you want to explain it or if you want to let me give it a shot or. Um, you can jump in there, but the, when when a area is declared a development zone or redevelopment zone, the property tax is frozen, and then you start investing um, with monies that you accumulate sort of because of the expected tax increment once things are improved, and you start improving that area. If, if blight or whatever the case may be, the idea is how you finance these things. You finance them through through the accumulation of these tax increment that normally, if you didn't have a redevelopment zone, would go to the county for a separation, as usual, of property tax. So it takes a chunk of the pro- of the future property tax out because there's people are excited that it's going to be developed and so therefore the property values are higher etc that's how i think of it yeah no and absolutely right and um i think um structurally what's was important to note is that the redevelopment agency was kind of its own separate legal entity that still um in essence is the city management and um the city council still overseeing but was yeah. a, a, you know technically had a, a different um, set of in, in incorporated rules, and uh, because of that, was more opaque than the general city council meetings. Right. Um, one of the things that uh, was a big critique of these agencies was was that they had very little oversight, that they weren't transparent yeah. in their purchasing decisions, and how money was being um, allocated. So that in our case, you know. Uh, basically, the agency reported to the city manager. Um, oh, actually, well, the, the best way to say it is that Dave Ream came in as the head of redevelopment, if I'm not mistaken, from Long Beach. And then, um, you know, that position was a fairly powerful launching pad to get him into the city management uh, or into the city manager's office after that. Yeah, I um, the, what I heard is Dave Ream was a budget analyst here in Santa Ana, so his experience in Long Beach and Lakewood, let's say he was sort of a junior budget analyst, if I'm right, right. and then he was a budget analyst, but very soon the budget, he he started getting into redevelopment and ended up becoming the head of redevelopment, and he ended up, after he became city manager, putting, if I recall, Cindy Nelson in charge of redevelopment, and he, uh, Cindy had been his right hand uh, in the redevelopment agency, um, and what it means is just doing deals because you have money, and so it's like elected officials always wanted to go out and have lunch with Cindy. Why? Because it's a different entity, and so there was a different. She would cover the bill, <laughs> you know? so it's like either you go out and the city manager covers the bill because it's city business. There's like the head of Parks and Rec taking you out to lunch. No, it's Dutch, right? <laughs> the only other department that would here all hand take give me that receipt was um, re- redevelopment. And 
probably it didn't help redevelopment eventually convince Jerry Brown that it needed to just completely. Yeah. Yeah. You those, know, those expense accounts can be can be dangerous when it comes to, yeah. to city government, and they should be watched yeah. closely. Um, yeah. The, the other thing that I guess now we're, we're getting into a little bit more, and I'm not sure if you knew this, but that you were slightly infamous for internally, um, was that you had a really good understanding of the different line items in the budget and how to squirrel away money from like year to year and from like use to use. Um, yeah, are people now discovering stuff for me? <laughs> is that... Oh, no, uh, it, was, it was discovered when you were there. Um, it was just more like, yeah, <laughs> that you and we're pretty good about okay there's some money over here and then we're gonna like make this account go with this account and these are the restrictions here so um let me see one example of that was the cell tower monies the cell towers can be built in different places but when they're built in a park i i uh, i control the negotiation the rent and yay or nay kind of a thing. And then eventually it has to be approved by city council, et cetera. But um, at first I have very little interest in the cell tower. It's gonna be less parkland because none of the revenue stayed in the park. And so um, eventually how we got there is a different story, but eventually city council ended up telling the city manager if we're going to approve these cell towers in park a then the revenue coming from park a from the rental fee of the has to stay in that park and then i had no problem because i because the park didn't have any money and so that was one accounting system that people got pissed off because i had money some money in in certain parks that have cell towers but i was only using it to maintain things that break break down in the parks i didn't have any other money you know and and that was done by policymakers but it's the but it's what i wanted mm-hmm. you know it just would go into the general fund and i would never see it again and so you have to do an accounting system for that you can't just like try to remember how much money you have in Jerome Park in the cell tower or whatever, whatever, Centennial, whatever the case may be, you actually have to follow um, so that you can know what you can afford in that park. And you can't mix and match. It's like, I'll take all the money from Jerome and invest it at Delhi Park. Well, no, that wouldn't be fair because you promised the neighborhood that the money would stay there. And that's just one example of of these pocket of monies that were restricted that benefited parks and recreation. Uh, there were others, but the, that was uh, one that. And eventually, I put the kibosh at all cell towers because I thought, you know, we don't have enough. I, I realize it's money, but I I just said no anymore because there was talk about taking the whole money back to the general fund and says the hell if I'm, you know, it's like, I'm not going to facilitate any more of these. And they were just enough. I think, I think it was between 15 and 19 cell towers all over 
in parks. Right. I know there's more than than 15 or 19 in the city, but in parks, there was about that. Right. And you're already fairly limited on park space. I think the argument's probably a little, a little tougher there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and created a policy. I don't, it was more of a, just an unspoken policy, but I would say it in council. We now have a policy, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And um, whenever someone knocked on my door, like a cell tower, because they, they could, they, they would go to the politicians, mm-hmm. right? Like your park and rec director doesn't want us to have it. Um, I would say, no, it's the policy. It's the city policy. So I can't do it. it there's no point in negotiating this. Yeah. Right. It, it, that's, again, another uh, bureaucratic technique. You actually t- turn things into an official policy, even maybe if <laughs> they're not a fully vetted ordinance or resolution. Um, I mean, it was, it was basically verbalized by the city council. I mean, if you go back in minutes and it says, I'm approving this money, but only if it stays here. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, well, to me, that means it's the policy. Because right. the majority voted on it, and it's you know that kind of a thing. But right. so, no right. one asked me to put it in writing. Okay, but always include it in the minutes and make sure there's it's there. All right. Yeah. Oh man, there was something I was going to ask, and now I totally blanked out. Um, and this happens all the time. Let's see. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nope. I wasn't about that. Oh man. Well, this is where we have a nice little moment of silence and a break. Um, no, no. Hmm. No, I thought I had it, but no, I, th- I think the, the, the that initial question was gone. So, uh, <laughs> so what should someone wanting to work for city government and, you know, obviously you made it really, really far in, in your career and you managed to you know, become the executive director of your, of your department. Um, I haven't really mentioned you. You, you made it to the, the, the top there for, for, was it a few months as uh, the interim? Four months. Four months as the interim city manager. Um, you know, right when Trump got elected. <laughs> well, <laughs> someone had to hold things together. Uh, yeah. So what? Um, you know, lessons do you think there are, um, or uh, you know, from your own experiences overall, that you, you think that anyone interested in working in local government should know? Um, the same. This, even if you're a community organizer for that group that wants to be educated about how city hall works, anybody that wants to bring people together. Um, and one thing that I could have improved, you can always improve on, is um, being really good at engaging with people and respecting people and not letting them feel that they're not that that they're not being listened to or that you have no interest in listening to them because it's not so much that they want to convince you is they get very angry when when they feel that the doors have closed and you're not even listening and it's the same at work and it's the same with the community and it's just a show of respect that uh, you want to get their perspective 
even though you know even before you meet this person based on what you know that you're not going to agree with this person it is the part of the essential craft that you need to succeed in my opinion because you see a lot of successful people in the city manager's office but they don't have a long-lasting career or they they rule by by instilling fear uh and i've seen that uh you know well if i can't who cares if you think i'm listening to you i can screw you i can mess your career i can do your career you know improve your career or not do your career that's the only thing you need to know and so you're like on pins and needles and afraid and so you have to you have to show that that person even if they last long in power their list of enemies is really long and eventually someone will well not only talk bad about them but eventually find opportunities to trip them and i saw that a lot a lot with people that were expected to be city managers or whatever the case may be and the fact that you had a reputation of arrogance or not listening to eventually people like there's no point in me at this point in juncture helping this person because they're an asshole you know and so i'm not going to help this person well there's a what if there's a long list of people that believe you're an asshole so you increase the chances that there's a lot of people out there that are not going to help you. <laughs> and that one you know? of them will be just positioned just right in order to damage you at the right moment. <laughs> yeah. And so I think I think um, being patient, being harmonious. Now, sometimes in my career, I wasn't. I wanted to get things done faster or I was going into a meeting whether it was with employees in the community, knowing that I was going to have disagreements and anger because I knew they were bad apples and they, they represented something I didn't want to go to. So I, I'm sure as I entered the room, they could read that I was, that I had this like F you kind of attitude towards them. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it manifests in behavior in in what you say in the word choice, you know. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, I wasn't immune to that. Sometimes I had done it, and people will were like raise their eyebrow. I never seen that part of you, Gerardo. But it's easy when you're frustrated and and you want to get something done and someone is in the way you can think of you can imagine all sorts of different ways to take this person out you know like not not in a literal sort of Tijuana but you know uh, strictly stone cold white collar elimination yeah yeah. but um, that's probably what I recommend so if you're you know, I do believe that it's good to be a good person. I do believe that it's good to be very, very understanding of your values. 
of, of your norms of the of principles uh, I do believe that you always have to be working and thinking about those things. Uh, sadly for Latinos, we sometimes also have to deal with uh, working on improving our culture and our families because there are some bad behaviors or some, some bad beliefs. Um, but generally speaking, being a good person, a good listener, a respectful person, both inside City Hall and outside City Hall, is is very, uh, very uh, critical. And, you know, and always do your homework, always read and be creative and think of how to be creative on projects and always have a bag full of possible creative solutions as a bureaucrat or as a community member as suggestions or questions kind of a thing so it's not it's not the art of war by Gerardo Moet by any means it's more of a <laughs> the prophet Khalil Gibran Gerardo Moet kind of a thing <laughs> much more mellower guy <laughs> than take no prisoners Okay, no, but you have a lot of that's also just know thyself and know thy enemy and uh, know the uh, situation that you're in, which I think you yeah. started off with. That's still Sun Tzu. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, I remember the question that I had, but I love that so much as a as a um, as a finishing thought. I'm almost afraid to ask this next question. Um, so. You had actually kind of overseen um, as Parks and Rec director, um, kind of the. Would I, from what I could tell, the biggest expansion of joint use facilities kind of um, in, in the city's history, right? Like we didn't really have yeah. joint use facilities, and then you had um, essentially three that were constructed at least. I'm not sure if there was a fourth one. Um, Let me see. Um, so there was Willard, mm -hmm. was uh, Garfield, and Willard Intermediate, the field and the park or the playground. Then there was Garfield. Uh, community center, uh, then uh, the Walker the, Roosevelt, oh. Roosevelt Walker, which I, I never, um, I had already gone to Long Beach, so I've never even visited, so I didn't know how, oh, how to really <laughs> okay, yeah, after COVID. I have to go check it out. It's, it's a really uh, nice center, <laughs> yeah. And and I, I think those were the three big ones that we basically got city grants in order to do the projects on city land on school district land i'm sorry and um so yes we had some old uh joint use agreements but they were like um like uh, um a baseball diamond that was in city park in school district property but we the city had installed the lights like three generations ago or something like that. Um, and that's why it's still joint use, okay. kind of. A, so, w w was Godinez under you as well then? Because then that's like the... Yeah, no, Godinez was uh, in 2001. Okay. Uh, and it was very much... Joe Fletcher, the city attorney, was very much involved. Uh, John Palacio, the school board member, was very much involved. And uh, it was in 2001 that Godinez became a joint use when they built the 
Godinez High School, uh, the recreational amenities on city land, the academic facilities on school district land. And that that is a very big joint use agreement, uh, but I did not initiate it. Uh, I inherited a lot of coordination challenges, but uh, it was just Willard Garfield and, and uh, Roosevelt Walker. Okay. So for anyone, uh, or you know, for your successors uh, trying to get those off the ground, were there any lessons learned uh, for, from that experience? Because I think uh, there's still a high demand for, for those types of uses, and especially now with uh, declining enrollment at the um, at the school district, you know, so, you know, slightly due to demographics, um, uh, and then some other pressures is related to um, well, affordability. In my opinion, the key to doing more joint use, if that's the goal, um, is that uh, the community needs to show up, understand the issue, and demand the issue so that the school board members that are elected as policymakers saying this issue is not going away because normally it's very rare for a school board member to actually win a campaign or explain joint use it's too technical or use it as as a way to gain points in an elected um, contest so it has to be during the act of being a board member that this that the and I, I did a little bit of that, or I didn't necessarily, but the community did a little bit with Latino health access uh, on Roosevelt, because Roosevelt was already kind of a quasi park that Latino health access had rented facilities there. And so they they helped organize a little bit, but not too much. It really was the grant. It was the, for Willard, Garfield, and, and Roosevelt Walker, it was all money. Mm -hmm. that spoke volumes it wasn't hearts it was like i can build this and you can use it while we're not using it okay <laughs> you know okay. we're talking millions of dollars yeah. and um but but in order to do more you need to get the community involved and passionately about a particular project because it's not it's not the superintendent and his staff and it's not a school board member through my experience that you will get the results that you want. It's very similar to the way Pacific Electric Park was developed. You know, mm -hmm. say no one is for it inside City Hall, but by golly, we're gonna figure out a way to change the hearts and minds of some policymakers in the community did, mm -hmm. you know. And, um, and you have to be creative that where staff comes you have to be creative a, a manageable joint use a joint use where where the school district can give you technical reasons why they can't right you know <laughs> oh man those technical reasons always fun <laughs> so is it fair to say that um, technical reasons uh, can be as big or as small as um, staff uh, want them to be is there a fairly wide latitude of discretion there in, in most instances well, yeah, I mean, for a while there on the back to the Pacific Electric Park, um, um, some staff from the Community Development Agency was saying, 
you can't afford it because you need to pay us $3 million for the land because we use $3 million worth of housing money to purchase the land so that how low-income housing can be developed. So that, now that that's like a technical thing. And it was provided to staff that were not involved with CDA like me and to the community. So it's like, it's we can't afford it, sorry. And then, thank goodness, and I was very happy, I encouraged this to occur. Don't take any answer as a final answer. I didn't know anything about really how how truthful it is. The fact is that some some technical answers are actually lies. You know, sometimes it's a stretch of the truth, but in this case, the three million dollars was lie because that was the total value of the six parcels that made up the 1.4 acres. But only one of the six parcels had been paid by housing money, which ended up being 238,000, which I paid. But $238,000 to buy 1.4 acres for a park is a bargain. And the other parcels had been purchased with city general fund, which means that when they were willing to pull the trigger on giving this land to a low income developer, they were giving most of this land, they were getting ready to give this most of this land to a developer, a private developer, granted of low income housing with general fund money. And as you know, general fund money is money that should be debated and discussed among policymakers. There's so many funds that are restricted. And why should it be staff that restricts general fund money? General fund money should only be restricted by policymakers. And I didn't make a big deal with it, but it's like, oh no, the bill actually is 238,000. And it says, oh, I can do this. And then I just, Throughout the years, I realized, my God, it was a lie. Number two, why should you know? It's it shouldn't be staff that has the power on how to use general fund money arbitrarily for this project or that to buy property in particular. So, um, so yeah, there are technical answers. I mean, questions, and you should ask and never give in until you're satisfied. You know, it doesn't matter what educational level you're in until you're satisfied. Someone, you know, figures out how to explain it. Or sometimes they realize, oh, we made a mistake. It's not $3 million. It's 238000 You know? I like how you've carried around this number with you all these years. <laughs> you're like, no, yeah. No. Well, I know because it's like I thought I won the lotto. It's like I didn't know that was going to happen. I figured I would find $3 million somehow eventually in time, you know, I didn't, I wasn't care, caring about that. I just know that the community wanted a park. It was a great place for a park and 3 million was depressing. And then a gift from heaven. No, it's not $3 million. It's, not three million. it's 238,000. And I told Ron, go ahead and, Prepare the check. <laughs> oh man. 
What a bargain. Uh, God. Actually, I love that you, you brought up Ron. Ron is one of these people that I think that more people should know who he is. For all, like Everyone at City Hall knows him, and everyone that works for the city for any amount of time knows the legend of Ron Ono. But yeah. um, since you worked with him for so long, could, could you give for the general audience here um, a synopsis of the legendary Ron Ono? Well, I he must already been... When I was in... 2018 when I left I think we celebrated his 48th year so you do the math so he's beyond 50 now years of working and so obviously he doesn't do this for money because his wife would have forced him to retire by now he does it because he loves it and he is a landscape architect and one of the better ones old school draws and he loves coming up with creative designs and um, and that's his heart. His true passion is parks and the design of parks. Um, and he's been doing it for a long time, longer than anybody that I know of. So he knows a lot of, about a lot of projects, primarily park related. Oh, now he's the one that asked me, hey, Gerardo, what was the name of that? deputy city manager that did a lot of money on the buildings he's the one that asked me because i the name just came to me it's rex swanson oh Swan- okay yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah he had left by the time i became an employee okay yeah his name yeah. does pop up a lot even though he continued showing up at city hall because of his interest but you know yeah, a lot of pathways in life and what we choose is our own yeah. <laughs> adventure i guess all yeah, right. Ron is a special person. Ron's a special person. Yeah, and yeah, just a little factoid to kind of illustrate it is that Ron has been around longer than the city hall building has been around. Like he yeah. was, <laughs> so yeah. so he literally predates city hall. Um, and he is actually it was one of the the funnest people to to work with. Right, so I never worked with him like as directly on any particular um, project. But uh, anytime I just needed to go in the office, he was always very. Um, kind welcoming you know funny but also very direct he's like oh that's not gonna happen don't don't waste your time on that so it was like this kind of old grizzled uh uh veteran underneath kind of just like how, how sweet he is as a person <laughs> yeah yeah all right he's, he, he's very experienced but he he also was very loyal to dave and to debbie um but his passion was park and design and still is and just if you ever see his original artwork that he does, it's it's something you can frame. Mm-hmm. It's that beautiful. All right. Well, we're going to need to make sure that we keep that stuff, if we can, frame it all around City Hall. Um, I think it's yeah, well-deserved. Um, well, Gerardo, I think I, I took enough of your, your afternoon um, okay. and, and almost into your evening. Uh, I you know, really appreciate this. This was uh, you know, wonderful. Oh. Did you freeze? Uh, I think it froze for a little bit, so we didn't hear your response. <laughs> I didn't. Oh hear. no, no, no! I'm. Uh, thank you for inviting me. This was fun, and yeah, it's um, anytime, anytime. All right, awesome. Uh, so I don't know if you have any uh, last uh, parting words or, or anything you'd like to share before we go. Well, you show to the community you showed up for voting, and now it's show up for policy making, and uh, and. It's 
it's uh, something beautiful when when you end up making a difference, whether you're inside City Hall or outside, but it could be a nice little clockwork kind of a thing. And then it just, it has a snowball effect in confidence. Then you become more confident for the next project or the next project and the next project. And before you know it, you're providing people advice on how, how to have good policy. In, in a municipal atmosphere. So um, that's my parting words. All right. Cool. Well, thank you for that. And uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, this is Manny Escamilla, the Full Metal Archivist, uh, coming out of the Michael Scott Paper Company Studios slash Iron Line Media. Uh, thanks to Edgar for the audio engineering. And uh, yeah, we're going to just have a little outro song. Uh, I haven't chosen your song yet, and I don't know if you have a choice. So you can send me some options later um, if you have a local favorite uh, that you'd like to uh, try to get on for the intro outro. Um, but everybody, you know, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to reach out uh, for any guest suggestions. Um, and yeah, just share the, it. Oh. On, the, on the song, uh, there's Natalia La Forquet who does a song called Hasta la Raiz. Oh, okay. So, or this is, um, you, you're, stretching, you're gonna stretch my capacity for uh, song rights, but it, we'll, we'll find a way to make it. Uh, oh, okay. So, copyright is an issue. <laughs> I, I try yeah, to respect copyright. Yeah, but but um, Natalia wrote this beautiful song about where she grew up, which is Veracruz, but. Um, it is applicable to everywhere because hasta la raíz means down to the root. And it's very, it makes you feel about your community and where you're from and your culture. And um, so it's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful song. Hasta la raíz, Natalia, la forque. Okay, we'll make it happen. Uh-huh, <laughs> okay. All right, Manny. Take care. All right, you too, Rita. Bye. Smoke